Well, welcome to Grace. Let's pray one more time before we look at the Word together. Father, we are asking for the teaching ministry of your Spirit. We're asking that you'd enable all of us to understand more deeply what it means to belong to you, what it means to be called by you during these days. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Billy Graham was known primarily for one thing, and that is the preaching of the gospel. And I want to start this morning's message with a brief time of remembering and considering his very inspirational life. And so let's take a few moments and watch this brief video. It's not often one man is able to move the hearts of nations, to usher change across race and age. But when someone gives their life to a divine calling, amazing things happen. That is the legacy of Billy Graham. Tonight, I'm glad to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ can be received, your sins forgiven, your burdens lifted. was born in 1918, during the end of World War I. Growing up on his family's dairy farm in North Carolina, no one could have imagined what God had in store for this hardworking young man. When he was 13 years old, he was in a play at school. His voice carried so well. I says, I, I just think there's something in that boy that we haven't discovered yet. <laughs> at age 15, he was invited to hear a man named Mordecai Ham preach at a citywide revival meeting. I was taken by a friend, and I became fascinated. And then the Spirit of God began to speak to me as I went back night after night. And uh, one night when the invitation was given, I just said, Lord, I'm going. From this moment, life would never be the same for Billy. A new passion burned in his heart to see lives changed. He went on to college and began preaching the good news of Jesus to anyone who would listen. It was during those years of academics and Sunday sermons that Billy met Ruth. The young missionary girl raised in China would become his best friend, the true love of his life. And he would be the first to say that without Ruth, his growth as a preacher and evangelist would not have been possible. When I came out and saw her standing there, he said, that is Ruth Bell. At that moment, I was in love and not only in love, something told me inside she'll be your wife. Now, it took her nearly a year to come to that same conclusion. Word of his powerful message spread quickly. He preached on the stages of concert halls and auditoriums and over the airwaves of radio and television. And soon, people began lining the streets by the tens of thousands just to hear him speak. Before we can have world peace, we must have peace within our heart. And bis wir Weltfrieden haben, müssen wir es Frieden. There's only one road to heaven. You say, but if I believe God, isn't that enough? I want to tell you before you leave Madison Square Garden this night of May 15th, you can find everything that you've been searching for in Christ. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the light. He was a mighty man. 
The Bible tells us that in spite of our sins and rebellion, that God loves us. As countless people responded to the move of God's Spirit, the demands on Billy seemed constant. But it was Ruth and their children that brought him strength and joy. Their home was a special place where he could simply spend time as a father and loving husband. These moments were precious to Billy. Yes, uh, there is a great sense of loneliness. And if there is a price to pay in this work, uh, it is that, uh, that I'm not with my children. God's calling on Billy's life took him from the largest stadiums to the most remote villages of Africa. He spoke not only of God's forgiveness, but also against the evils of racism, communism, and social injustice in our world. And don't let anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all people. He belongs to the whole world. He was one of the most sought after men of this age, turning down the political stage and Hollywood spotlight in order to continue his ministry to the lost, weary, and forgotten. His message was unfaltering, remaining true to the gospel and his steadfast faith in Christ. I'm asking you tonight to follow him, to serve him, to let him come into your heart and forgive you. Be forgiven. Know that you're going to heaven. What can be said about one man's life? For Billy Graham, let it be said that he lived his life to bring the lost and hurting to Christ. Are you willing to receive Christ tonight? Because you may never have a moment quite like this again. You come and receive him into your heart and say yes to him. Hundreds of you right now, just get up out of your seat and say tonight, I want my sin forgiven. I want to know I'm going to heaven. I want eternal life. I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ as Lord and Savior. I want to follow him from this night on. Billy Graham will be laid to rest March 2nd at the foot of a cross-shaped walkway at their ministry headquarters in Charlotte. He's going to be buried in a simple prison-made plywood coffin next to his wife, Ruth, who died in 2007. And on his tombstone, it'll read what he wanted it to read. It'll read, Preacher of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Billy Graham was all about the gospel. So my question this morning is, we begin is, so what is the gospel? And what is our responsibility or our calling in relationship to the gospel? I think if, if all the churches that are having gatherings today across this country gave a pop quiz, and gave everybody a piece of paper and a pencil and said, write out the definition of gospel, the gospel. What is the gospel? I think we would be amazed at how many different answers we would get. So we want to answer that question today. What is the gospel and what is our call in relationship to the gospel? Now, Before we do that, I want to just remind you, last week we began a series 
a five-week series on the book of 2 Timothy. Now, the background of this book is so important for us to understand. We need to understand that the Apostle Paul is writing his last letter, his last epistle. We need to understand that what is on his mind as he writes this letter is quite obvious as we study it. And that is, what is on his mind right before he goes to martyrdom, and he knew his, his life was about to end. What was on his mind was the drift of the church. The church that he, had, that he worked so hard to build up was now much of it drifting away and even entering into apostasy. And he was so alarmed by what he was seeing and what he was hearing that he had to address it. So he addresses his last epistle to Timothy, who was his closest companion, his fellow laborer in the faith, and his son in the faith. He led Timothy to Christ. But it was from a dungeon, a dark, damp, underground dungeon that Paul writes this last epistle. And again, and what is on his mind as he is in change is what he's most concerned about is the condition of the church. The church had slipped into a theological and moral confusion. And it was even many were even falling away who Paul had led to Christ. And he was alarmed by this. So he writes to Timothy. I mean, there's passion in this letter. He writes to Timothy. So Timothy, pick up the torch. Stand firm. Dig in your heels. Stand for the gospel. So much is writing on it, Timothy. The words that crystallize this book for me is there's four phrases throughout this book that Paul uses, and the phrases are, but as for you, he uses it four times, but as for you, Timothy. I mean, the church he's saying is, being, is drifting like the culture, but as for you, Timothy, dig in your heels, stand firm, hold on to the gospel. So Timothy's called to be different, not to yield into the pressures of public opinion or the spirit of the age in which he's living, but to stand firm on the gospel. And it's my judgment that there's nothing more needed for the church in the West, America, and in, the, and in parts of Europe and so forth. I don't think there's anything more needed than the message of 2 Timothy right now. It's also important to remember some things about Timothy. Timothy, we know a number of things about his life based on this passage we covered last week. We know that he was young. I mean, there's all kinds of things stacked against him for what responsibilities are being laid upon him. Number one, he's young. Number two is that he is frail. He is he's easily, uh, he's got lots of ailments. He gets sick a lot. And number three, he was timid in temperament. So he's young in years, frail in physique, timid in temperament. But nevertheless, God had called him to this important task. I believe the church today needs to desperately understand this message because much of the church is is fumbling the gospel right now. They're giving up on it. They're trimming it. They're, you know, they're compromising it. And what we need now, I believe, more than any, anything, is we need a generation of young Timothys that'll rise up and commit to proclaiming the gospel, commit to being willing to be, even to suffer for the gospel, and commit to guard the gospel, and also commit to pass it on to the next generation. Last week we saw that Paul doesn't get very far in his epistle before he's, he's already 
challenging and charging Timothy to do some things. These are things that the young Timothys of this generation also need to be charged with. First is this. Number one, he says, Timothy, don't be afraid. And number two, and don't be ashamed. Let's look at this again. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to Timothy, For God has not given us the spirit of fear. He knew Timothy was so easily afraid. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Don't be afraid, Timothy. Secondly, 2 Timothy 1.8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of testifying about the Lord, of sharing the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, not of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, don't be ashamed. But what is the gospel that Paul's talking about? We need to know that clearly. And what is our call? Each one of you have a calling related to the gospel. What is it? So let's break it down. So basically the message for the rest of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy is God's gospel. What is it? And our calling in relationship to that gospel. What is that? So let's jump into it. First of all, God's gospel. What is it? Let's go to 2 Timothy 1.8. And we'll read verses 8 through 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul makes it clear the gospel is good news. That's what the word means. Gospel means good news of salvation. The gospel is good news of our Savior, Christ Jesus. The truth that Paul continually repeats in his epistles is this, that we are saved in Christ Jesus by God's purpose, by God's grace, and by God's call, and not by our good works. In fact, in these verses, Paul tells us about this good news of salvation, he tells us three things. He's going to tell us about the salvation, what it is, its character. He's going to tell us where it comes from, its source. And thirdly, what it rests on, its ground. You know, ever since we just, it wasn't very long ago, we came through Christmas and some of the typical Christmas verses we hear every Christmas season, like when the angel appears to the shepherds and says, I bring you good news of a great joy, for today has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It is all, the gospel is all about salvation. In fact, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul and his companions were in Philippi. And they are described, their group are described with this description, and the description is accurate. They're described as, and I quote, servants of the most high God 
who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Weren't they gospel preachers? Yes, they were proclaiming the way of salvation. So let's talk about the character of this salvation. Now, in this passage, we're going to do a little bit of study here together. There's three phrases that we need to pull out and kind of just look at the three of them together. Because these three clauses actually assert these three things. Number one, he saved us. That's the first clause. Number two, he called us with a holy calling. And number three, he brought life and immortality to light. Those three things happen simultaneously. First of all, when you turn to Christ as your Savior and Lord, you repent and believe in him, then he saved you at that moment. You're saved. But there's much more than that. Also, at that moment, he called you with a holy calling. You're called with a holy calling. You're called to holiness. And number three, he brought life and immortality to light. You see it. You get it. You got it. He brought life and immortality to light. So this one verse makes it plain that salvation is far more than forgiveness. I want you to notice that the God who saved you also calls you to a holy calling. Just think about that for a moment. The God who saved you called you to holiness. Called you, and you think, what does holiness look like? Holiness looks like Jesus. He called you to this process of now becoming more and more like Christ the rest of your life. You know, if, if, if ever, since the time of, of repenting and believing in Christ as your Savior Lord, if there's never been any desire in your heart, any movement or desire for holiness or for wanting to be like Christ, then you have good reason to question whether or not you got it, whether or not you really know him. You know, there's a verse that really impacted my life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Pursue sanctification or holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. No one's going to see the Lord without this. So the Lord who saved us also called us to a holy calling. So when God calls a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to himself, he also calls them to holiness. Keep that in mind. Not only that, but God's plan of salvation includes immortality. By the way, this, this breaks into three parts of God's great plan of salvation. Number one, forgiveness. He saves us, forgives us. Number two, holiness. He sanctifies us. Number three, immortality. There's a day coming where we're going to be glorified and live forever and ever in that glorified state. So there's forgiveness, holiness, and immortality. Or we could put it this way. God's great gospel includes the fact that he justifies us, he is sanctifying us, and he will glorify us. So first of all, he pardons all of our offenses. You turn to Christ as Savior Lord, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are all wiped away. And then we become in his sight. We are righteous in his sight through Christ. That's justification. It's an important biblical term. You should know it. That's justification. But it doesn't stop there. And then the Holy Spirit enters your life at that point of conversion and begins to transform you the rest of your life to become more like Christ. That is sanctification. It doesn't stop there. And finally, there's a time when we will go into his presence 
whether we, when we die or when he, if we meet him in the air when he returns. And then we're going to receive glorified bodies in a glorified place, and that is glorification. I mean, just think about how great a salvation we have. Our, this great gospel of salvation is he justifies you, he's sanctifying you, and he will glorify you. What, great, what a great salvation we have. So this is where, and by the way, let's think about glorification for a moment, because that's where we're all headed. Everyone who knows Christ, you are headed to a place of being glorified forever and ever and ever. You'll have a glorified body. You're going to be in a glorified place forever and ever. I mean, just let that sink in. I think we got to come back and just keep letting that sink in. Don't forget who you are and where you're going. Sometimes we toy around with so many idiotic things and we forget who we are and where we're going. You are destined for glory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. That's how great our salvation is. But Paul tells us more. He tells us more than just the character of our salvation. In this simple passage, he tells us, secondly, the source of our salvation. Where does this great salvation come from? He tells us. 2 Timothy 1.9. Listen to this. God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Let that sink in for a moment. What he's saying is this. If we would trace the river of salvation to its source, we must look right back to eternity past. That's when that grace, that gift of grace was given to us. It was given to us. In fact, the exact words, if you translate them literally, the apostles' exact words were, before eternal times. You know, this idea is very clear that if this is true, then this, if, that, if our, the source of our salvation is God actually chose you before there, he created anything. You already, he already chose you. He already knew who you were. He already chose you. And by his grace, gave you the gift already. I, I mean, it's hard to get our minds around that, but that's what the Bible teaches. But I want you to understand this. If that is true, which it is, then the source of our salvation cannot be good works. Right? If God gave us his purpose and grace in Christ Jesus in, eternal, in eternity, then that's before we did any good works, right? So we couldn't have earned it. That was before we were born. That was before there was a world. That was before history. That was before time. That's in eternity that happened. Now, there's some doctrines, biblical doctrines, that we can't really we have trouble getting our mind around, like the doctrine of election and predestination, our finite minds cannot fathom. How can we have free will and yet God has is, is, is done this thing called election? The Bible teaches us. How does that fit together? And our answer is, we don't know. We don't know. We don't understand. In our finiteness, there will be a clearer understanding in his presence when we see him. But clearly it's what the Bible teaches. It emphasizes that salvation is due to God's grace alone. Not man's works, not anything mankind can do, not any good work any man, woman, boy, and girl did in time, 
but in God's purpose, conceived in eternity. Now, how, how should that hit us? I'll tell you how it should hit us is, is we should think, for, first of all, the first thing that hits me is just humility. I mean, there's no boasting in anything but him. No boasting in anything we've done. We did not earn this. In no way. So deep humility should really grab our hearts, but also a deep gratitude. A deep gratitude that he, that he did that for us. And also, I think it brings a real peace and assurance for nothing, I think, can quiet our fears like the knowledge that our safety and our security depends ultimately not on ourselves, but on God's own purpose, God's grace. So he talked about the character of salvation, the source of salvation, but he's got one more thing. He wants to talk about the ground of salvation. Our salvation rests firmly. It is firmly grounded upon the historical work performed by Jesus Christ at his first appearing. Again, though God gave us his grace in Christ Jesus before creation, though that's true, he manifested it in time through the appearing of the same Christ Jesus as Savior through his death and resurrection on the cross. Now, and Christ appears, he begins to, you know, show us what the Father's like, but then he goes to the cross and dies on the cross and rises again. What happens when he does that? Two things, Paul says. Number one, he says that at that moment, he abolished death. And number two, secondly, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Let's just talk about those for a second. First, he abolished death. You know, when the Bible talks about death, it talks about it three ways. First of all, there is physical death. That's the separation of the soul from the body. Second of all, there is spiritual death. That's the separation of the soul from God. Thirdly, there is eternal death. That's the separation of both the soul and the body from God forever. And all of that is due to sin. They are sin's terrible, though very just reward. But Jesus Christ, when he dies on the cross for our sins, absorbs all of the judgment due us, he breaks the power of death at that moment for all believers. Now, what does that mean for us? That means that death is no longer any you know, mean ogre that we need to fear. But death for the Christian now is, as the Bible says, gain. Or it is far better to go and be with the Lord. In fact, Jesus talks about the word that's used of him abolishing death is, is basically has the idea that he has rendered death so harmless that he could even state that the believer, though he dies, he never dies. That's how harmless it is now. And also, those who are in Christ Jesus will now be hurt by the second death. The second death is separation from God because what happens when we turn to Christ as Savior and Lord, we are moved immediately at that moment from death unto life, into life, according to John 5. But Jesus said, you have already passed from death to life. So all we're going to do now as Christians is we're going to be alive and we're going to keep on living. We're never going to experience some horrible thing called death. We're going to be here. We're going to be there. But he also talks about immortality. I mean, God has immortality and Christ is now offering it to people. I mean, even our bodies are going to be resurrected, according to 1 Corinthians 15, and immortal forever. Glorious, immortal superheroes is what you're going to be. 
I mean, you can watch all the superheroes you ever want to watch on TV, and nothing compares to what you're going to be. Amen. The day that's coming, we're going to have glorified, these resurrected, glorified bodies. But not only that, not only are we going to be immortal from that, at that point forever and ever, but even our treasure, our inheritance, First Peter, First Peter chapter 1 verse 14 says, even all of our treasures and rewards are going to be imperishable, immortal forever and ever and ever. You know, there are some hints in the Old Testament about life after death, but only hints. You study the Old Testament, you'll find a few places where it's, it, it makes a reference to immortality, but, but it's not, it's, there's not a lot taught about it in the Old Testament. But the gospel just throws floods of light upon his offer of immortal life. I mean, through the conquest, you know, Christ's uh, conquest of death. And again, remember who's making the statement. The Apostle Paul is writing this about abolished death, and he's facing death. It's around the corner for him. He knows it. I mean, I think he can even imagine the, you know, the reflection of the executioner's sword coming down. He knows it's around the corner before he's beheaded. And yet he can cry out, Christ abolished death. He's not afraid of it. Why? Because he knows he's just going to be there, here and there, and in glory. You know, so many people are afraid of death today. They don't want to talk about it. I mean, I try this sometime. Invite some people over for cake and coffee and say, hey, let's talk about death tonight. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about it. And people go through all kinds of effort and expense to avoid it. But death, though it brings some sadness when we're separated for a brief time with loved ones in Christ, the, the truth is that death for the Christian is going to be nothing but gain in every way. That's why Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. You are blessed. This is this great salvation that we're offered through Christ. This is the great gospel. So its character is this. It's, it's, it's the, our recreation and transformation into the holiness of Christ now and forever. It's the source. Its source is God's eternal purpose of grace. I mean, we were the giftest gift of grace back in eternity. That's his source. And his ground, his ground is Christ appears in time. And it's, a, it's the historical death and resurrection of Christ that abolishes death. So I want to put these, uh, these truths together and give you five steps here, so to speak. Five stages, I should say, by which God's saving purposes unfold in your life. Number one, by his grace, we're given the gift of salvation way back in eternity past. Number two, then Jesus Christ appears in history as a deliverer to abolish death by his death on the cross and his resurrection. Number three, then our hearts were awakened by Christ's personal call to us as sinners through somebody sharing the truth of the gospel with us about his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection. Stop and think about that for a moment. Think about that time. I mean, already you're given the gift of salvation back in eternity. Yet you remember that time when you heard the gospel and all of a sudden it's like your heart was awakened and you wanted so much to believe this and you did? You remember that moment? Think about that moment. And then number four, and then as born-again believers... We begin the process of moral sanctification by the presence of the Holy Spirit who now indwells our lives. So now we're being sanctified 
And finally, number five, and then finally we'll reach the full glorification in heaven with our resurrected bodies and our, when our holy calling is consummated in glory. Pretty good salvation, wouldn't you say? What a great, great salvation. That's God's gospel. It's all about salvation, full-orbed salvation. Now, what is our calling in response uh, to God's gospel? What's our calling? Let's look at verse 11 of chapter 1, 2 Timothy. The gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, Paul says, and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Verse 13, remember he's talking to Timothy. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure, he's talking about the gospel, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So after receiving the gospel, what is our calling? Our first calling, of course, is to receive the gospel, believe Jesus as your Savior and Lord, receive the salvation. But what is our calling as believers? Our calling is threefold, Paul talks about. Number one, communicate the gospel to other people. Remember, Paul's talking about, he's, Paul says, I was appointed an apostle and a teacher and a preacher of the gospel. Think about this. If this life and immortality which Christ achieved are brought to light through the gospel, then of course it's imperative that we should proclaim the gospel. People need to hear it. They need to hear it. So Paul says, I was appointed an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher of the gospel. But already back in verse 8, he talked about Timothy. And Timothy, don't be ashamed to be a witness. Not everybody's called to be a preacher or teacher of the gospel, but we're all called to be witnesses of the gospel. Remember, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses, all of us. On Valentine's Day, you know, every so often we just try to get, we got to get the whole, all the office staff together out of the office and make sure we're in the community fulfilling the great commandment, loving people, and also the great commission, sharing the gospel with people. And on Valentine's Day, we decided to go to all the fire stations if we could and, and bring them gifts, gifts, gift boxes of treats and from Grace Community Church, reminding them on this Valentine's Day, remember, God loves you and, and look for opportunities to, sh to share the gospel. But also, we went to several schools in the ASD and, and to their administrative areas, also to their teacher lounges with these boxes of goodies from Grace Community Church, reminding them that God loves you and looking for opportunities to, to, for, to pray for them, but also to share the gospel, the door, the door, should the door be open. But my team, we went to UTA, and we're out there talking to college students, and we had a, a group with us, but Steve and I were, were having a good time out there. Steve's our college pastor, and I just, I, just, I said, Steve... I, was, I said, you know, it was almost 40 years ago that I was, I, was out, I was out here at UTA doing this. Like 38 years ago, I was out here sharing the gospel, and I still love it. I love talking to college students about Jesus. What a great joy that we get. What a great privilege and honor we get to talk to people about the good news. There is no greater news. This is good news, the gospel. So many Christians act like it's bad news. Hey, can I talk to you? I got some bad news for you. I mean, this is good news. There is no better news. It's salvation. It's the story. It's, it's, the, it's the good news of salvation offered to them. And so we get to do that. You get to do that. It's part of your call. You're called to do it. 
It's not like it's an optional thing that you may be so inclined one day to get around to. It's a calling to communicate the gospel. Secondly, we are also called to suffer for the gospel. I mean, Paul's already summoned Timothy not to be ashamed, but to make sure to take his share of the sufferings of the gospel back in verse 8. But then Paul also reminds him that he's already suffering for the gospel. Paul reminds him, I'm not asking you to do something I'm not willing to do. In fact, I'm doing it right now. But if you ever wonder what is the link between suffering and communicating the gospel, why does the gospel, talking about the gospel, bring suffering and bring, you know, you know, offense to people? Well, here's the answer. The answer is this. It's because God saves sinners in accordance with his own purposes and grace and not according to their good works. And that is offensive. Let me point it out another way. It is the undeserved freeness of the gospel that offends. John Stout, I'm sorry, John Stott points this, points this out in his good commentary on this, on this book. I just want to read you what he says because it's so well said. He says, The natural or unregenerate man hates to have to admit the gravity of his sin and guilt. His complete helplessness to save himself, he hates to admit that. The indispensable necessity of God's grace and Christ's sin-bearing death to save him. And his inescapable indebtedness to the cross. That's why Apostle Paul talked about the stumbling block of the cross. So no man can preach Christ or share the gospel with faithfulness over a period of time without you know, getting some opposition and even persecution. It's going to happen. I tell you, I share with you my opportunity to share the gospel both at my daughter's wedding and my mother's <clears throat> memorial service. And, <clears throat> excuse me. and at both times there was people that were leaning forward, listening, and people leaning back with their arms crossed, glaring. They couldn't believe that I had the gall to take that time to talk to them about this. I mean, it is offensive to some people. You know, we have an aroma about us in Christ. And that aroma to those who are heading for life, that aroma is life to them. Our aroma to those who are heading for death, our aroma is death to them. So Paul talks about when I first started sharing it. When I became a Christian college, I shared the gospel with everybody I knew. I had to. I just thought they got to have this. I mean, they got to know Jesus. I mean, I just want to talk to everybody. I, I, didn't, think, I didn't have to get my any you know courage up. I just wanted everybody to know. And I lost most of my friends doing that. But I want to tell you something. I got a lot of friends doing that, and they were a lot better friends. But there will be some pushback. Paul's saying, expect it. Don't be surprised by that. Be willing to suffer for the gospel, he says to Timothy, and to all of us. There's going to be some pushback sometimes. So go ahead and know that, go, know that going into it. And don't let that stop you. And then finally, our call to guard the gospel. Verse 13 and 14, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard to the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. 
So Paul gives a double exhortation to Timothy. First, he says, follow the pattern of sound words which you heard from me. So he calls the gospel sound words. I love that. It's interesting because the word sound there is the same Greek word that's used when Jesus heals a sick person. They become whole. They become sound. They become whole. They become healthy. That same word is used of the gospel. These, it's a health, these are healthy words. These are whole words. These are sound words. Paul says, retain those words. But also, he says, guard the treasure that's been entrusted to you. Guard it. Guard it. And he says, and basically, he talks about the importance of, of doing our ministry of the gospel, he says, in faith and in love. Faith and love. So how do you do that? How do you share the gospel in faith? First of all, let's talk about that. How do you do that in faith? Here's what goes on in my mind when I'm talking to someone about Jesus. In my mind is this, that God is already at work in their life in some way. Let's say 10 is they come to Christ, you know, and they're born again, and zero is that they have no interest at all. Maybe there are two, or maybe there are five, maybe there are eight. I don't know where they are, but I'm believing that God's already at work in their life. That's why he's intersected me at this point. I think you need to believe that. God's already at work in their life. Now, you, your conversation might move them from a two to a three. Maybe they don't, they don't receive Christ at that time, but still, God's at work. You've got to believe that. Secondly, another thing that it causes, the way I think is this. I'm a fish that got caught, and I'm glad I got caught. How many of you are glad you got caught? There are people out there that aren't caught yet that are going to be glad they got caught. See, so many times we get ready to talk to someone about Christ, and we're thinking, well, you're probably not interested. You probably don't want to hear this, but I got to share it. I heard a sermon on Sunday. <laughs> and there's people out there that want to get caught. I love what the young lady said in the, from the high school group. She said, I was waiting for a moment like that. There's people that want, so in faith, we got to realize, we got to believe that. There's people that want to get caught out there. You're doing them the biggest favor you could possibly do them. So that's how you do it in faith. How you do it in love is real simple. How do you share the gospel in love? Treat others like you want to be treated. That's how. Just treat them like you want to be treated. How many of you want to be somebody's project? Nobody wants to be somebody's project, so don't make anybody your project. How many people want to be judged and, you know, condemned? Nobody. So don't judge anybody and condemn them. How many people want to be pressured? Nobody. Just love them. Love them and share the most wonderful news they could possibly hear, the gospel. So Paul says, guard it, Timothy. In fact, the word guard here is the same Greek word used in Luke 11 when, when Jesus talks about guarding. He uses the word as guarding a palace against marauders or guarding possessions against thieves. We're to guard the gospel against who? Against heretics who want to go ahead and change it and corrupt it or trim it. And by the way, Paul named names. You notice that when you read Paul's epistles? He names names. And so must we sometimes. Heretics didn't just exist in the first century. They exist today. By the way, anyone who teaches salvation by works, that's heresy. Anyone who teaches Jesus plus works will get you saved is heresy. Anyone who teaches Jesus plus doing all the sacraments will get you saved, that's heresy. Repent and believe in Christ as Savior and Lord alone gives you salvation. But that salvation you get is not alone. Because a person who's now saved out of God's amazing grace wants to do good works, but they don't want to do good works in order to get saved. They want to do good works because they already got saved. And that is very different. 
That's the true gospel. So we've seen that the, the gospel is good news of salvation, promised from eternity, secured by Christ in time, and offered to faith. Our duty is to first communicate it, and by the way, use old ways, use new ways, and I just want to give a challenge to the young people here. Everyone who's under 30, listen, there's extra ears here. We need new ways to communicate the gospel. Not a new gospel. New ways to communicate the gospel. Think about this for a moment. I've been in lots of countries where, where people are having dreams and visions about Jesus, and they have the internet, and when they get on the internet, when they go to, and they search Jesus, who they just saw on a vision, what comes up on the first page on Google? It needs to be a website that young people from Grace Community Church came up with. How about that? We can do it. Those are the kinds of things that we can, we need to think of new ways to communicate the gospel. But also, we need to continue to be willing to suffer for it. The authentic gospel has never been popular. You know why? Because it humbles the sinner too much. That's ultimately the issue. It just humbles them too much. Remember, until you acknowledge your spiritual poverty and come poor in spirit, to them is the kingdom of heaven. It humbles the sinner too much, and they hate that. So there's going to be pushback. So we want to suffer for it. Do not give in and be tempted to trim it or corrupt it. Don't do that. Keep it like it is. It's perfect. You know, I was in a meeting the week before last. A group of pastors, we got together and we wanted to meet with some leaders of AISD because we're going to have a serve the schools ASD day, which we just want to fulfill the great commandment, love our neighbors as ourselves, help the schools. But also, we do want to meet people and eventually share the gospel. We want to share the gospel with them. Well, this leader of ASD gets up and he says to the group of pastors, he says, I want you to know that I serve in my church. He said what the church was. I won't say what it was. So I serve in my church, and I want you to know that just going to the schools and doing good works is the message. And I'm back there thinking, you just did it. You just corrupted the gospel. That isn't just a message. The message takes words. We've got to speak the truth, too. Good works are, are wonderful, but good works will not save anybody when you, you know, just by, by helping people. They've got to hear the gospel. That will awaken their heart. And they'll believe in Christ. So we have to make sure that we do not give in to this temptation. Guard it. Keep it pure at all cost. Keep it from corruption. So here it is. Our calling, spread the gospel actively. Number two, suffer for it bravely. Number three, guard it faithfully. That's our threefold calling. I want to finish by telling you the rest of the story about Billy Graham as we close. And that is, in that video you saw that he came to Christ through the ministry of a guy by the name of Mordecai Ham. But really, there's a longer story I want to tell you just real quickly, and that is this. There was a man, a Sunday school teacher in his church by the name of Edward Kimball. And God put on this Sunday school teacher's heart a young man who was a shoe salesman. He was a 17-year-old shoe salesman. So Kimball went to the shoe salesman's store and made sure that he, he said, I've got to tell you this. And he told him the story of salvation. He told him the gospel. That young 17-year-old shoe salesman's name was Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody comes to Christ. Dwight Moody leads a man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman to Christ. J. Wilbur Chapman leads a man by the name of Billy Sunday to Christ. 
Billy Sunday leads Mordecai Ham to Christ, and Mordecai Ham leads Billy Graham to Christ. My whole point is simply this. Never underestimate what God will do through sharing the gospel with a shoe salesman. Well, as we close, let me just ask you, most of you have said yes to the gospel as far as asking Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, but have you said yes to the call to communicate that gospel, to be willing to suffer for it and to guard it? Because that's part of our call. It's part of our call. And so as we close in just a moment, I'm gonna, there's going to be a video that's going to have the song playing by Brian Durkerson. The song is actually the song, Just As I Am. I thought at least we got to get that song in the service this week in light of Billy Graham's passing. <clears throat> his favorite song in all of his uh, crusades was the song, Just As I Am. And so that song, but, there, but the video that you're going to see is actually taken from the movie, The Passion of the Christ, where Peter denies Christ, but then he comes back full circle to him. And so during this time, this ministry time at the end, I, just, I think there, God wants to just give some of you who've never really said yes to that call to communicate the gospel, to be willing to suffer for it, to be willing to guard it, to say yes to that call today. And I'm, the way you're going to do that is just come up here because I want to pray for you during this, during this song. But also, there's some of you that God wants to do a recall. What I mean by that is, yeah, you, you used to share the gospel, but in all honesty, you haven't done it in a long time. And God's calling you back to it today. He's calling you back to communicate it, be willing to suffer for it, and guard it. So some of you, you know, you're, you're old pros, so to speak, at this, but you realize you've, you've slipped back and you haven't been doing it, and God's calling you back to that, to the front lines of that. So even you, I'd like you to come during this time as we close in prayer for you. So let's all stand. And Father, we ask you to do a work by your Spirit now in all of our lives, Lord, and also especially... In those, Lord, who are just saying, Lord, I, just, I need the power of your Holy Spirit for this call. Those who come forward, Lord, and are just saying, Lord, I need to get back to doing this. And I need to be empowered again, inspired again, Lord, by your Spirit. So, Lord, even as we close, Lord, would you pour out your Spirit in great power that we would all fulfill this call in these strategic days in Jesus' name. So go ahead and play the video as the song is going. If that's you, you're saying yes to the call, and you never really have said yes, or you're saying, I'm coming back to that. Come on down as this place.
Some of you come down and just lay hands on these that are here and pray for them. Just like come out of your seats and just begin to pray for them. Holy Spirit, power. Holy Spirit, wisdom, love. We need several more people to come down. Just come and begin to pray for them. Just begin to pray for him. Just begin to pray for him out loud. Pray for him. Come, Lord. We need Holy Spirit power, Lord. Fresh today. Make us bold. Give us wisdom, Lord. Empower us to do it in love. Raise up a generation of Timothys, Lord. Raise them up. Come on. Those of you still in your chairs, just just you know, go ahead and put your hands facing this direction. And sometimes postures help us engage our faith. Engage your faith. Now, Lord, we ask that you to pour out your spirit and great power now. Pour out your spirit, Lord. Those who are saying, Lord, I'm I'm responding to the call or I'm, I'm responding to the recall. And Lord, just fill them with your spirit now. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, would you just cause us to remember this week that we are here for this calling. You could have taken us right into heaven, but you left us here with this calling. And Lord, that we be faithful to it in the name of Jesus. Now, before we dismiss, I, just like that young lady in the video said, I was waiting for a moment like that. Perhaps you came in today and you're thinking, you know, I'll, I want to say yes to Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I'm not done. I'm ready to do it today. And I'll be down here. Some other leaders will be down here as we dismiss. And we'd love to pray with you and talk with you. So don't leave without coming up here and letting us uh, really help, help you make this decision and pray with you. So, Father, we pray now as we're dismissed that you just use us this week as shadow the darkness kind of people as we're the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless you. <clears throat> There's Connection Coffee in the corners. We'd love to answer any questions you might have. But also, if you need prayer, feel free to come up front. <clears throat>